Hello again and welcome to another episode of College Football Down Under. My name is Aaron Kemp and we have a very special, special episode for you today. I'm not joined by Will Murden, which is an absolute blessing. I actually get to spend some time with someone uh, far better looking and far more articulate and far more intelligent. And that gentleman's name is Spencer Casimir. Now, hi Spencer, how you going mate? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Now, I, we feel very lucky to, to have you on the show. You are, well, you're going to have to tell us a little bit about your story because you went to high school in New York. You're an undergrad at USC. Now you're doing some work with Harvard University, I believe. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you've come from, how you've ended up, where you've ended up and how you've ended up in Australia. And you even know some of the suburbs here in Adelaide, which is a little bit scary. Uh, you're a well-traveled man. I was going to say it may be disarming. I don't. I hope not to be too scary. Uh, I did. <laughs> I did grow up in New York. Um, I lived in LA since I went to USC. I did a uh, a post grad uh, at HBS, uh, and I'm now doing a PhD um, that focuses a lot to do on the Americanization of sport, and it, it's a bit of a clickbait title. Um, it's it goes well beyond just cheerleaders and halftime shows. I'm looking at actual um, movements within the game, both on and off the field. Um, and I've been following actually Aussie rules, rugby league and rugby union since I was about 16. Wow. Um, you know, thank I mean, you. Late, late, late night, you know, Foxtel in New York for that. That's how I got hooked. You must be uh, very rarely do you, you f I feel like you get a lot of Australians going and observing a lot of American sport. I don't know how many Americans go the other way into rugby and Aussie rules. I can't imagine that happens a whole lot. You know, it's funny. So uh, rugby union has a growing and consistently strengthening uh, participation in the U.S. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the, I wouldn't say the early days, but we'll call it the teen years of American gridiron, uh, the Western states wanted nothing to do with it. They viewed it as an East Coast um not just Ivy League, but also Iron Belt sort of sport. Uh, and they stayed with Rugby Union um, for much longer than uh, the rest of the country did. Uh, a good example of that is a, uh, the Best and Fairest from Geelong. Their award is called the Kaji Greaves Award. And Edward uh, Kaji Greaves uh, was the first winner of the Brownlow, but also went over to USC to coach them in the kicking game in the late 20s. Now... Uh, this is before the ball, uh, the shape of the ball changed again in 33. Uh, obviously, the kicking game was quite important then, and um, we were only a little bit over two decades into the forward pass. Um, but I, I actually do have a few photos of him uh, suited up with the leatherheads uh, at the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. That's him. Uh, yeah, it's impressive. Thanks. I mean, every time I speak to you, you keep churning out little bits of history. Now, obviously, if you... Haven't quite worked out. Spencer is a a sport historian guru, uh, obviously an academic, and knows a lot about a lot of different codes, not just limited to uh, American football or rugby or Aussie rules. Um, I know you've got um, experience and knowledge across a whole spectrum of sports, so it's going to be an awesome opportunity to have a chat about all that today. And the purpose of today, I suppose, is to to have a chat and look at the connections between some of the codes, some of the history, um, the role that Australians 
have had and potentially will continue to have over in America in college football. And then look at some rule changes and, and where college football is heading to in the future as we sit on what feels a little bit of a precipice at the moment in terms of the direction of the sport, um, where it can go. Um, so before we do get into all of that, though, where can we find your work? So you can find me on Twitter at BallsOutPhD. It's not meant to be rude. It's actually an homage <laughs> to uh, the way uh, engines work uh, with their counterweight. So balls out, PhD. The only double entendre has to do with the fact that it's also sport, not just motor racing. Um, I do do some writing on the roar. Sometimes I get picked up uh, to consult for various articles uh, for other publications as well. And a lot of what I do goes into the PhD um, as well. And you've got a lot of connections in professional sport as well. Don't sell yourself short, mate. You're always being consulted on or consulted with around certain moves and different conversations with people, which is which must be really exciting and, and really good to put, I guess, some of your uh, some of the lessons you've learned and the things that you've explored into some sort of practice, I assume. Absolutely. So I, I don't look at what I do as being purely a historian, the historian's book of things i see what i do is very relevant to informing what we are doing now and where it will take us um i was very fortunate to be asked by roy masters uh back in 2019 near the nrl grand final to consult and um, advise on a proper way to fix golden point in rugby league uh, because originally it was pinched very loosely from uh, american football uh, it, at least in the NFL sense, and I did construct a post, see, uh, sorry, a um, an overtime rule, uh, post regulation that would essentially solve the problem. And I did look to both the college football game and the NFL um, to help massage that in that something that's culturally and practically appropriate for rugby league. Um, it was kind of nice. Got picked up uh, to chat with ABC hmm. um, grandstand on that one as well. Um, but yeah, no, there, there's a day job too. Everybody has to have one. I. Uh, <laughs> I head up, uh, I'm the chief representative of Australasia for the company known as Sports Beams. Um, and we did the stadium lighting for the Super Bowl. Yeah, awesome. That would be a, uh, I imagine that is an underrated aspect of the spectacle that is the entertainment in the Super Bowl. Obviously, you think of entertainment lighting in concerts and shows, but I assume the Super Bowl is not far off any of those things. In fact, may be on par with them. Absolutely. One of the unique things, and not to flog the product, but, uh, but industry-wide that we're looking for is greater integration of all technologies into the stadium itself. Mm -hmm. Being able to do broadcast light and millions of colors in a single unit um, is absolutely crucial to that. So when the stadium is being used for non-sports purposes um, or purposes outside the primary tenant, which is usually a sports team, um, that the artist musician and the team can tie directly into the stadium and utilize that as part of the entertainment as opposed yeah. to just relying exclusively on rigging and things like that and yeah. it's, it's a very delicate balance to make sure that you're meeting all the broadcast requirements not just for today but for the next 20 years because if you think back to let's just say 2001 um, nobody could have ever imagined that everybody and their dog would have not just a flat screen but even in 2010, it was plasma. Nobody could imagine an LED that had 4K. 
let alone mm. 1080i or 1080p. Yeah. So it's about uh, setting the milestones as to where we think the industry is going, not just in terms of lights, but in terms of what I advise on for sport. Uh, what are the goals? What are we trying to achieve in terms of certain rule changes, which we can talk about later in the show? Um, yeah. What is the purpose? Will they move the needle? Um, and at times, sometimes they're just lip service towards something that's absolutely needed for addressing, but nobody has a good idea, or maybe people feel that's enough. Um, but that's not for me to judge. It's for me to try to assess to see what the best answer is. Not that I want to get too lost in the weeds here then, but obviously you would have watched the Olympic Games. I'm assuming I'm going to put you on the spot here, but you would have watched the opening ceremony. Um, mm-hmm. the, the big thing that stood out to me was that drone spectacular um with the rotating that became a rotating globe does that have a i know that's you know they're slightly different contexts in terms of uh that was an entertainment entity in and of itself as opposed to something that supports something happening on ground level but i suppose the drones have a, a big bright future in this space that's a really really great question and that is putting me on the spot i do think drones do have a really strong future in sport um because then you don't need the wires from a spider cam Hmm. Um, now the question is by removing the wider wires from the spider cam, uh, is that an additional safety issue? Now, the good part is there's fewer things to hit if you kick a high ball. Yeah. Um, but the question is obviously what's the chances of hitting a wire and what is the chance of hitting the camera? And is there an opportunity to see the game differently? One of the things that I absolutely love and when, uh, when there's a recording of a football game, uh, when there's the opportunity to view it in what I call Madden mode you know, viewing yeah. right, o- right over the quarterback. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, we have to ask ourselves questions and be very critical of what we do because a lot of things we do, we do because it's the done thing. And it's because our parents did it. Now, why do we watch football going side to side as opposed to that quote-unquote Madden view from on top of the, uh, from behind the quarterback? Yeah. The answer is that was a technological limitation. There was no spider cam in those days. Yeah. Um, why do we have uh, the color scheme where... Uh, one team has to go white where the other team has, you know, full colors. That had to do with black and white technology in TVs. You could, many people couldn't tell the difference. Um, even Al Davis is quoted um, as saying he wanted silver and black because it's what the Army team looked like on a black and white TV. Yeah, right. And their colors are not black and silver. You know, it's more of no. gold. Yeah. Uh, black and gold. But because black and white TVs were the done thing and the standard, um, there was no other choice. And it did inform how these decisions got made. Um, and it's not a bad thing, but I love watching in Madden mode because it really allows you to feel like you're part of the action and yeah. really see the receivers. I hate it when the receivers run off the screen because I don't <laughs> know what, the, you know, on the route tree, yeah. I don't know what they're running. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think like, I suppose part of that is broadcasting as well, although I, I suppose with COVID coming in this year that broadcasting now is being done more remotely. So I guess it's less of an issue because typically those broadcast box do sit somewhere between, I assume, the 40s um, so that you can see that entire field. But I don't know, maybe that's less of an issue now as we look to televise, commentate and and produce more remotely, I suppose. Yeah, and that's where I think you're bringing up of the drones is very... Uh it's very novel in a good way, not just <laughs> not just dropping dropping that word as a pejorative, but um, that that could help in the actual filming of the game in ways we didn't expect. Even if we are physically present, the fact that we can do it remotely or 
we can do it presently and focus on different angles. The, the big question though is, uh, surrounds the reality that culture is very monolithic and moves very slowly. Yeah. Um, we, we've been watching football a certain way for since the beginning of broadcast. Um, are enough people going to be interested in watching that way that would justify any investment in it at all? And we've done experiments with it. When I say we, I mean, I've watched it, which means yeah. money is going to it. Um, and this has been going for, I want to say, at least over over a decade. Um, but but is, is it enough to make everybody want to watch it in a way that's actually better that allows you to see the route trees? Yeah, I, I, or maybe I, it's just us snobs that really you know want to see the route trees, and that's yeah, not really no, important. Like well, that's where like you want the all twenty two stuff, don't you? Because if you're if you like watching the X's and O's and you like breaking down a bit of film, um, you you need the whole picture, and you don't necessarily get that. Um, but I've just got this image now in my head of like drones, like a, a quarterback's just thrown his third interception for the game, and he's gone and sitting on the bench and he's fuming, and a drone comes down to get the action shot like right in front of his face, and he's sitting there trying to swat at a drone um, or throw something at it in <laughs> frustration. I think that'd be good. Yeah, I, I could only imagine uh, how the players' association would react to that. But no, I do think there is actually a place though where you could have a drone for the purposes of other points of view. Um, picture yeah. in picture if you would uh, yeah. where you can see other things going on uh, it's funny that, that that was your takeaway from the opening ceremony though at the Olympics my big takeaway was that uh, you know speaking a bit of Japanese they did it in Japanese alphabetical order yes they did yeah um, of course normally English and French as the dominant uh, languages or the, the two traditional languages of the Olympics but yeah I thought that was really I don't know, it was nice as well. And I think some things do change, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they don't. Yeah, I loved it. I, I went right back into uh, katakana mode and I was like, okay, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I found interesting, though, and, you know, for language nerds out there is uh, when they chose to go with the phonetic katakana spelling of the nation or the uh, kanji-based yeah. version of the nation, because sometimes they are not synonymous. Correct, yeah. Yeah. Australia, for example, if you're talking about Japanese-Australian relationships, the actual kanji for Australia is pronounced goal. So yeah. ichi goal kanke, Japanese-Australian relations doesn't sound anything like Australia, but it is what it is. So I, I still yeah. haven't figured that one out. Wow, we have got lost in the weeds here a little bit, but let's get ourselves back into uh, football mode. And, and let's start back at the start, uh, you know, wherever you define the start to be. But... Um, uh sorry uh where do you wh where what's the link and what's the connection between the afl and rugby codes and american football well that's actually uh we can all say that it all started with a lie um there's no real strong evidence to say william webb ellis ever with disregard for the laws of the game picked up and ran with the football um and that this is a much longer conversation for another time. And that was alleged to have taken place at the rugby school. And there's a lot of, frankly, uh, social uh, implications here as to wanting to keep it identified with the social elite, uh, historically speaking, um, to say that the game is born there and from there. Um, but if we accept that rugby school amongst many other schools, um, we're playing various versions of football, Harrow, Eton, uh, Cambridge. Uh, you may not recognize the names of some of them, um, but they play very their own football codes still. These were created at a time in England where something was called uh, something called muscular Christianity was being uh, 
perpetuated. The idea that you know they were going to make boys into men by having football codes, um, and whether that's really happened or not is another story. I don't think they ever would have been able to predict, you know, grown men and women being paid professionally to do so. Uh, certainly not in the way today, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, the fact that everybody gets paid at the professional level, at least, and that's obviously a, a sore issue with the NCAA, means that everybody can afford to play. Um, but those codes, Aussie rules, rugby union, rugby league, uh, and the American and Canadian gridirons all come from rugby, the rugby school of football on that tree, on that family tree. Um, what's interesting is you, you might remember uh, the 150 year anniversary of intercollegiate football mm -hmm. uh, that was celebrated. Uh, and I'm not saying it's a lie, but I am saying it's a misrepresentation. Uh, Rutgers against Princeton was played under the association rules in 1869, which for those that aren't aware the word association is where, where the shortened version SOC for soccer comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, we as humans have a tendency to call whatever the most popular football code in our area, just football. And because of confusion in England, they said they made nicknames. Rugby became rugger and association rules became soccer. SOC. <laughs> um, so the thing, though, is the use of the hands in soccer was always permitted until 1869 or 1863 when certain restrictions were put in. And then eventually 1869 when it was fully banned for anybody but the goalkeeper to handle the ball. Um, so it's, there, there's a lot of questions. Now, is it the first intercollegiate football game? Yes. Is it the first intercollegiate football game that has led to the evolution of the sport as gridiron? No. That would have been uh, Harvard against McGill. And McGill, being Canadian, was the school that brought the rugby rules to North America, to Harvard. Harvard was playing what's now a dead sport known as Boston rules. Um, so they're all from the same tree. They all came in through different portals. Uh, with regards to Aussie rules, um, you know, Tom Wills who long dead has been in the news quite a lot most recently, um, quite controversially, mm -hmm. uh, did and was educated at the rugby school. So he brought um, the rules of the rugby game. And again, rugby not meaning how we perceive it today, but the rules of the football game played at rugby school while he was there to Melbourne. Um, it evolved differently and separately, clearly. So um, they are linked. They are not part of the association rules. And one thing I would want to clarify is in that William Webb Ellis myth of, you know, with disregard for the laws of the game, picking up and running with the ball, um, it does give the false impression that they were playing soccer, that soccer somehow preceded the rugby game and gave birth to the rugby game by breaking the rules, which is certainly not the case. I can give you a sport right now that millions of people watch that have the same requirements. Gaelic football. You may not pick the ball up directly from the ground. Mm -hmm. That's why you see them scoop it with the foot. So that mm -hmm. ticks one box and run with it. Well, you still have to dribble or alternate or get rid of the ball um, by a, a bounce or a, a solo. or a solo, correct? Uh, off the boot to yourself or a hand pass to someone else or fully dispose of it. So because soccer has become the global sport, um, we have a lot of false impressions and we insert our own modern day and contemporary day uh, norms as to how we see the world on top of these statements that were made 150 years ago, plus years ago. Mm. So um, there is no connection there. There's, there's other things that we can get into. Uh, Tony Collins, who I'd consider uh, one of them, you know, he, 
there's nobody like Tony. He's the guru uh, <laughs> when it comes to these things. Uh, he, he, people can check him out <laughs> if they're interested. Yeah. Um, or pick my brains, but the, he's the guy who I who I respect when it comes to uh, this sort of uh, evolution in England and uh, football codes. But uh, I'm sure we we, we got to get onto gridiron as well. Um, we but do. interesting that America got it from Canada, which maintained the three down structure from 1880, where we whereas we added the fourth down much later. So when Americans sit like, because there's a lot of criticism. I will get, and I'd, you have to. You're in a far better position to comment on this than I. But certainly, England and Australia friendly banter. America and Canadian, uh, Canadian. The American Canadian relationship seems fractionally more frosty, and I don't know if that's fair or not. Um, it's very punny, if anything. <laughs> um, but it seems like America has always taken credit for gridiron so to speak um and that's not necessary or that's the way it's perceived here at least anyway um and that's not necessarily fully accurate um it's not accurate and i happen to love three down canadian football uh you don't hear a lot of people from the u.s necessarily or anywhere saying that i think it is a fantastic game um the gray cup is going to be it started as a rugby trophy it's been Mm -hmm. a canadian gridiron trophy for a very long time let's just say um but it's uh, it's quite unique. It's uh, it's a great sport. It holds on to a lot of the traditions. Uh, for example, um, three downs instead of four downs. Uh, there's also a concept which is much more familiar to Aussie rules players that when you miss a field goal or you punt the ball and it goes out the back of the field, you're awarded one point, which is called a rouge. Um, it, it sounds a lot like behind for those that are uh, more of the uh, Aussie rules ilk. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also being on sides at the time of a punt, which does not exist in any of the American games. That no matter where you are relative to the punter, you will always be offside. So much to the fact that the rules as they stand today dictate essentially that if you are offsides at the time of the punt, which is everybody, and you touch the ball, that is a penalty. However, the penalty is, is a turnover, which you were doing anyway. So <laughs> it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit interesting. It's a bit silly because... We're dealing with all these moving pieces, and I think laws of the game, laws of society, uh, social norms, it's a bit like playing Jenga. You have all these very simple, you know, we'll call it just proverbially 10 rules for a football game to start, you know, 150 years ago, and then somebody does something or something occurs uh, that's unintended and nobody knows what to do, and you have to address that rule, and then something else happens and occurs. And then you have to address that rule. And you, you compile all these rules in a linear fashion, you know, in, t- in terms of a timeline. But there's a lot of rules that just become, we'll call them vestigial organs, you know, the appendix, that they're mm-hmm. still there. Um, but they still actually have an impact on the game. We just, they're largely overlooked until something yet again happens. I mean, we were talking just before, um, just before uh, recording about how there's such uniquely different laws regarding the forward pass in the game as opposed to almost everything else uh, mm-hmm. to the extent that we were talking about Michael Dickens, uh, Michael Dixon's uh, punt today, you know, a punt blocked and then punting again and being behind the line and why it's important to know where the plant foot is, or is it based on where the foot is when it contacts the ball and uh, all these things. But for some reason, despite the fact that a live ball exists in all these scenarios, the forward pass, if you throw a forward pass and it bounces back, you can't throw it forward again. Yeah. 
it exists separately. The rules, once somebody has the ball, uh, if, if, if you remember the Eagles Super Bowl, um, whether somebody is a runner or a receiver, um, they've evolved alongside each other, but not necessarily together. Mm. Not, and it's a bit of a Jenga tower um, in that capacity. So yeah. if you're watching the game, you're just enjoying it. These sort of things are just little highlights that can be fun. But yeah. I've been ra- just railing against what's called mutual infringement in rugby league for years. Um, and I said, just wait, it's going to happen in the most awfully spectacular way. And then people are going to pay attention because for those that aren't familiar, it used to be that if there is something that impacts play, uh, you know, a ball bursting, somebody running on the field, uh, you know, hitting the referee, something like that, that mm-hmm. the ball goes to the attacking team. Yeah. Well, what does attacking team mean? Well, back when rugby league was founded and broke off a of rugby union, um, field position was valued more than possession. So if you were on the wrong side of your line, you, you had possession of the ball, but you were within your own 50 meters. Yeah. Well, you're technically still the defending team, even though yeah. you're the team that's possessing the ball. Um, <laughs> and that's where this whole mess a few years ago in the grand final uh, yeah. stemmed from. It's not that people don't know they're there. It's just that we tend to be a very reactive society and not really deal with things that are not everyday occurrences until they happen. And unfortunately, they usually happen in pretty awfully spectacular ways. Well, in a, uh, on a specific rule, and I am going to go into college football here, we'll, we'll get to some rule stuff in a second. Before We're going to hit a little bit of the, I suppose, cultural makeup of the sport. But there's one rule that I've hated for a long time, and that is the uh, offensive team fumbling the ball through the end zone, and that results in a turnover um, if no one recovers that ball. Should that still be a rule or not? <laughs> is my question. That is loaded and putting me on the spot. My I am. Goodness. I hate that rule. Because you can fumble it anywhere else on the field and you can recover it for positive yards, providing it's not a scoring play. Mm-hmm. Even with scoring plays, it can be done, just not in the last two minutes for... I get the reasons, but I think it's stupid. Um, but, you know, you get to within the one-yard line and you fumble and it goes through the end zone and now the other team gets the ball. It's the only time on the field where that happens, where the, the defending team doesn't actually need to recover the ball to obtain the ball. I think that that is consistent with all of the laws and rules in all of the games that stem from the rugby tree, the family tree of football. Um, the end zones and the area between the dead ball and the try line uh, you know, using rugby union, rugby league terminology, mm-hmm. um, have always had separate rules that are uh, a bit sacred to themselves, similar to the, the forward pass being separate to the rest of the game in many ways. Um, another good example of that is if you are in your own end zone in rugby league, just to show how this is not just limited to the gridiron, is that you can have people in front of you if you're booting the ball away from within your own um your own end zone because it's not reasonable essentially to expect people to be in alignment or and or behind you when you are uh, behind it. Um, Again, I don't necessarily love it, but I understand. Come on. uh, This isn't the answer I need, Spencer. Come on, mate. (laughs) I just, let's get it. I would say you have to, you have to keep it. It's (sighs) not, it's, it's not, it's not very rewarding, but I think it's very consistent. Uh, with the intention of all of these different codes. There's no. nothing inconsistent with it. 
if you lose the ball and it goes out the back, um, well, you know, it kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> you uh, lose it completely. Yeah. Uh, it, well, there's similar things that have occurred. You know, people used to take uh, attempts at field goals from 69 plus yards out uh, all the time. But that's because at that time, Gridiron hadn't changed the rules to say that if you miss the field goal uh, and, and it used to just come out to the 20 yard line. Yeah. So you, yeah, you right. were better off attempting a field goal and just making sure it at least went, you know, out the back of the end zone yeah. than it was worth even going for a punt at yeah, a certain yeah. point. And that's because players got better. And that's one of the things that people don't understand. Uh, I think, or let me rephrase it. I don't think that's something that people appreciate enough that, Yes, it's important that we maintain respect for the rules and not just change them willy-nilly, but that players and coaches are good, they get better, they're smart, and it's, it is the job, I believe, uh, of administrators to ensure that an open, played version of the game is actually what we see on the field, because that, that's a universal language in all football codes that we all love best. We don't like it when it's just pile up, pile up, pile up, and, you know, very close quarters, very close play. That's true of any game. Mm. It's, it's, it's people's biggest complaint uh, with the contemporary game regarding flooding in Aussie rules. It's yeah. a complaint when people just run, um, you know, repeated hit-ups in rugby league. It's, you know, the uh, creeping barrage, to use another league term, of just pick and roll and pick and roll in union. We yeah. want to see the game played in an open, wide format. Um, and the question is, are we achieving it? And why do we want to achieve it? I think that, you know, you tweak the rules to maintain that intention of open field play. Um, so that's, well, that's, on that then, important. let's let's jump, let's roll with that point a little bit. Have the, the rules of, of football continued to make it more open, which I assume is in, in an intent to have higher scoring, which is more attractive to the to the viewer i'm assuming and again i'm jumping to conclusions here but um i assume that's the purpose of opening this game up and and have these uh rule changes particularly i suppose around player safety to protect the quarterbacks and reduce the impact of of the pass rush potentially to give the quarterbacks a safer um environment to attempt more passing um or has it just been a natural evolution of the game i think you hit the nail on the head um, I think anybody who loves to play any sport would play it regardless of whether it's an open game or a closed game. There used to be a game called push ball and it was the ball was big, a big leather old thing that, uh, was about six feet high yeah. uh, in dynamic, uh, diameter. And people loved playing it, but it wasn't a great spectacle game cause it was just a bunch of guys pushing a big ball. <laughs> um, it's, it, there, there's a difference between playing a sport uh, that's enjoyable to play and playing a sport that's enjoyable to watch. And spectatorship has definitely trumped everything in the most extreme in, on the gridiron and in many American sports. Um, the focus on the enjoyment of playing the game per se as a pastime, as an activity, is, you know, it's not first place, to put it politely. Whether it's second or it's, it's tenth is not really uh, the point. The point is that... Um, absolutely spectatorship of the game as a financial model and as you know consuming as a spectator is the prime focus um i do think that dictates a lot dictates a lot if you look at again gaelic football for example being a fully amateur competition and obviously amateur has different shades of gray 
uh, when you look at the NCAA and compare it to Gaelic football, who's really more amateur. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean as pejorative term amateur, but really amateurism, amateurism is uh, non-professionals. Um, their MO as an organization is to make sure that the game is essentially played by all people pretty much the same, that you could you know, participate on the weekend in your local Gaelic footy club and uh, be able to get up and go to work on Monday morning, um, which does dictate how they do any of their uh, rule adjustments uh, because the participation is put at a, an exponentially more important. It's put much more in, uh, in a way where it's important in balance with the entertainment of watching. Now, they sell out Croke Park, and I think that's around 110,000 people. So it's not to say that they both can't go hand in hand, but uh, whether or not it's the priority of a league for people to enjoy playing the game, uh, if it's not an amateur sport that's also supporting grassroots, well, the answer is probably no. You're going to look, look at the entertainment value. Okay, so have the rules, the rule changes, I suppose. You, you don't see, I mean, if you go back and watch the old, like, American America's game and you see the old you know casts on the forearms of linebackers and safeties just ripping heads off um and you know a lot of that to protect wide receivers to protect quarterbacks has that had the intended outcome you know i'm gonna go with the brick wall analogy that uh, i've discussed a few times mm-hmm. um a person's gonna punch a brick wall much harder if they put on a boxing glove than if they just hit it with their bare knuckles. Because if you punch a brick wall with your brick with your bare knuckles, you're in for a whole lot of pain. And as good as the armor is, and I don't think it's just padding, what we wear in, on the gridiron is armor, um, you are protecting your skull. You're reducing the amount of pain that your pain receptors feel. But your brain doesn't feel any pain. It's not brains don't feel. Um, but it does mean that like that boxing glove hitting that brick wall exponentially harder, it's getting jostled in your skull, in your jar juice, if you would, uh, that much more with greater G-forces. I don't think you can invent a better helmet in that capacity to make it safer for the brain. I also think that a lot of focus on the safety of players while playing in front of an audience is disproportionately focused on as opposed to the safety of players um, in practice. Now, I'm not saying that precautions are not taken. I'm saying it's disproportionate because most of the hitting and most of the contact that a player goes through in most contact sports is in practice. It's not in the game. However, because we as an audience only see them on game day, I think there's, again, a disproportionate amount of focus on making sure that the players are at least safe during the game and that's not really for me moving the needle i think you have to look holistically and unfortunately if it looks safe in front of people most people are happy with it um Mm. so there is an argument to say that maybe we should not be making it look so safe in front of people while not addressing the amount of times that actual contacts occur which is mostly practice interesting because and again, I, I'm not fully all over um, AFL especially, but you sort of get the impression that physical training is limited during the week. 
um, to preserve them for what is an extremely physical endeavor on the weekend. Um, but that you're saying that that's not necessarily the case. It's not necessarily the case because you don't have to have a huge collision that ends in a concussion mm. for there to be buildup damage for uh, post-career injuries such as CTE. Mm-hmm. Uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy has been known uh, even pr- by that name, actually, even prior to Dr. Bennett Amalu mm-hmm. um, doing the autopsy on Mike Webster. And before that, it was known as dementia puglistica. Before that, it was, you know, go far enough back into the 1800s, it's boxers punch drunk. Yeah, okay. Um, it, there's a long history, uh, the impact of repeated mild and medium traumas, traumas to the brain. So I'm not saying that it does nothing. Again, far from it. What I'm saying, though, is that if it looks like it's nothing, people are not going to pay attention to it. It's, it's a bit of the cliffs of Dover, if you would. They didn't end up cliffs overnight. The water slowly eroded away at them over a very, very long period of time. Mm-hmm. Nobody just noticed them and said, hey, there's some cliffs. But you know, just as the water eroded away at what became the cliffs, the repeated milder and medium uh, contacts will erode and erode at the brain. It's, it's, it's very simple. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. we as humans have a blind spot to not focus on the things that we can't very readily and openly see. We're all like that. We're all guilty of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, I'm not pointing my finger and saying, you know, X person is an absolute dolt. <laughs> yeah. from it. It's something that we're all uh, guilty of. But if we're aware of our blind spots, we should be aware and be able to come to a better conclusion that, again, protects players. Go- so- going back to the origin again, there wasn't a single person that if I had to bet my money uh, in the 1800s that ever imagined that grown-ups would ever be playing these sports, mm. let alone professionally. Yeah. These were schoolboy games, again, to make, and this is just paraphrasing it uh, with a very broad brushstroke, make English boys into English men to serve the empire yeah. and lead the empire. That's it. Not yeah, serve, so lead, like, lead is the better word. So, and I've always thought this as well because um, I can't help myself because I was a very mediocre athlete in my own right. But if aren't we I'm, all? That's why we're on the microphone. Exactly. So, you know, I'm six foot three. Uh, I won't say, you know, how many kilos, but my playing weight was closer to 100 than not in terms of kilograms. So, there's a chance then if I'd played football, now I don't have the, uh, the vicious. Uh, mentality of some of these people obviously but um, there's a chance then at my size and weight I could have competed at a high level back in 1850 or something absolutely yes it's, again, that's all I want to there, hear there's intention um, I was going to say trust me as uh, I, I'm not going to say my weight in kilos because despite <laughs> loving most things metric I still don't know my weight in uh, kilograms okay um, but no I, you know even for me personally I had my my stint in uh, competitive uh, fencing and uh, some martial arts and then rugby union. Um, I do believe there's a place on the field for most sports. Um, But if you're talking about the gridiron, what's so unique about it is it's so Mm hyper-specialized. Before World War II, we didn't do this platoon system. It's called the platoon system for a reason. Um, 
it's there are separate it's very military based in terminology and people played both ways with the ball and they tried to bring that back after the war after the war um but when all these G, these guys these gis came back and went into the universities and all there there, there were there was a flood of talent mm-hmm. um just not enough people uh not enough spots so the obvious answer was hyper specialization offense defense and special teams that's um, not that's not just football either I, i've watched a ted talk recently on the specialization of sport as a whole mm. um and there was some discussion around the fact that a good athlete was someone that could do a bit of everything yep. whereas and that, that goes back to the olympics the the the, the yeah. perfect body for the olympics in the world view of the 1890s was the vitruvian man yeah absolute balance um We've always looked at absolute balance until specialization in which you needed to specialize your body to fit a specific role. If you did shot put, you only did shot put now. Mm-hmm. Um, Gavin Willisey wrote a great book called No Helmets Required about the American Rugby League All-Stars, uh, which frankly, they never played rugby league prior to getting to Australia. Um, they were all were mostly American football players from USC. Mm-hmm. Uh, go Trojans, fight on. Um, <laughs> and uh, other California schools that were brought to Australia in the 1950s. And the reason why this was a possibility for them to even do this back then was because these boys had been raised on playing both sides of the ball on the gridiron. That would not have been possible um, a decade later in the 60s where everybody had become accustomed to playing one side of the ball. The Mm. counter argument to that is that rugby league had unlimited tackles in those days as opposed to you know, limited downs, limited tackles. Yeah. Uh, that 1966 was when the four tackle rule was brought in, um, which is not the same as four downs. It's actually three, uh, if you do the math. Um, and that's why I believe they so quickly made it a six tackle rule and adjusted in 72. There mm-hmm. just wasn't enough ability to advance the ball and strategize as a game. But yeah. I digress. The point being that um, these American football players had played on both sides of the ball. Uh, which gave them the ability to come over here and be able to defend at the same time. Now, if there was a magic world where limited tackles and their ability to play both sides of the ball were intact, we may have a whole different history right now of Americans playing rugby league, but uh, that's Mm. just not how it was. So it's not how it is. So how do we make this thing safer then? If Is it remove the helmet? Like get rid of that and teach people how to tackle properly? If you're saying that the helmet has created a weaponization of the head rather than a protection of the head, uh, is it better to just remove the helmet completely? I, I would, not just the helmet. I'd take off the massive shoulder pads. I, I would strip it down, go to um, you know minimum padding. Uh, the most you should be able to do is maybe rugby union, rugby league. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to protect the face as well. No contact to the face. We have face mask rules that would have to be adjusted. Um, you'd have to, it's, it's not going to happen. Let me just say no. this. <laughs> it will never happen. Um, but if you're asking me for a practical solution to hopefully make things better, at yeah. least for the NCAA, um, there is a lot going on behind the scenes about teams that are doing uh, practices with no hitting whatsoever yeah. right now. And uh, students are leaving those schools because they feel the schools are soft. Mm. There may be a reality to that, but it is it going to save a lot of brains? Yeah. So I don't know if having just a few teams operating that way, if they are not winning as a result, is going to make things safer. Now, if you had no contact practices for everybody across the whole country and that you still kept the game as it is, pads, helmets, 
uh, on the field. Are we going to see maybe the same game as it's played now? The answer is no, but probably most people wouldn't pick up on it. Um, yeah, okay. Because it would be fairly subtle. Um, I don't know. It's it's where you want to draw the line. It's it's not for me to do that. But I do think that having only some teams doing padless practices um, and other ones doing full contact practices is just completely inconsistent and a bit silly. Pick one or the other. Be done with it. And you know, sleep in the bed you made. Yeah. Okay. So staying in college football specifically, and staying um, on something quite topical, I suppose the NIL, so name, image, and likeness legislation has started to not i guess it it has come through there's still i think some kinks to be ironed out in terms of various states and the different legislature in those spaces and what schools can and can't do um, there is a federal nil law now um, but that is yeah you know we're working through that process and, and trying to iron out some of those kinks but what does that mean for college football is this a good thing for college football and um, you know there's a lot of people in that boat saying this is fantastic college players now get to uh, I guess monetize some of their god-given talent so to speak uh, and you know perhaps that's a, a good thing because of how much the colleges make off of them they deserve to earn some money back you know and we don't need to go down the rabbit hole of of the pros and cons of nil so to speak but um on, on a uh, superficial level but in terms of your experience and your understanding of it what do you think about nil has this been good for the game uh, I'd make three points. Number one, it does nothing for international athletes because that's a visa issue. They are not allowed to earn money uh, off campus per se. So mm. no, they are not allowed to earn from their likeness. Um, so all of the boys that we're sending over and uh, women, uh, well, boys for football and women for uh, you know the variety of sports that are in college um, athletics in the U.S., they are not earning at all. They're not allowed mm. to. So there is a second class of athlete that's been created as a result of this. That's the first thing from an international, from an Australian perspective. Um, secondly, uh, what people don't understand is in the U.S. as a rule of thumb, legally speaking, uh, and this is part of the research that I'm doing at VU, is that the U.S. is the only country that has what's called at-will employment, meaning an employer can fire somebody without good cause. And that does set the culture of how teams operate, even if they are not, if students are not technically employees of the university. Um, the way NFL clubs are run um, and the coaches and cultures that go back and forth between the NFL and the NCAA um, are part of a greater landscape of American culture. And there's a, a much more precarity in employment historically in that respect. There's only one state that actually protects employees and requires good cause, and that's Montana. Um, so, which is interesting. It took, it, this all started in 1895, Montana overturned it. I want to say what, 18, uh, sorry, 1987 or so. Um, and there, yeah. honestly, there should be more studies into how that, how they as a state have been able to function, although it would not be frankly very applicable to largely urbanized states. Mm. Um, but the last thing specifically regarding, uh, making, uh, earning money from one's likeness is that I think it sets two dangerous precedences. The first one is that I don't believe 
most athletes, not just football players, athletes as a whole, understand that, or appreciate at least, that they are not all in the same boat. If you're not a starting quarterback, wide receiver, linebacker, fill in the whatever the invoke position is for your school at that time, you're not going to be making much, if any, money from your likeness. I mean, mm. good luck if you're on the rowing team. I mean, no slight at rowing. I mm. think it's a great sport. But people are not paying the same dollars for to see those athletes on a certain advertisement with their likeness, um, you know, compared to the starting quarterback. Um, and Do students so- know this, though? Surely there's some understanding of that between, I don't know, maybe they're high school kids, maybe they don't, but surely there is some knowledge of that, isn't there? I'm sure there is some knowledge of it. I'm not saying that these are idiots. I'm yeah. saying that these, like you said, are kids that have just come out of high school. And, you know, part of the beauty of being at that point in your life is that you have <laughs> you have the ability to think of the world as you would like it to be as yourself. Um, but it doesn't necessarily apply directly um, to what the law actually says. It's one thing to, to understand things it's another things to have experienced things. Mm-hmm. It's it's even to the extent that if uh, I use this analogy sometimes, it's almost knowing, for example, that you're about to get hit in the face, but it doesn't prepare you for how much it actually hurts when it happens. Yeah. Um, and the and the problem that comes of, uh, from this, and this is why this is a two part point, is one, not everybody is going to be able to earn reasonably the same, but because there's now the capable ability to earn money at least theoretically from one's likeness even how unlikely as it is uh, in certain uh, sports i do see a world where universities are going to say well we don't really need to give you that much of a scholarship or we don't need to provide you know full room and board for you anymore uh, because you can earn money from your likeness you know come on you're you're you know you're a first string varsity fencer and just bring up fencing because it's something i did Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you can earn money from your likeness. We don't need to give you a full scholarship. We'll give you, you know, we'll start small. We'll, we'll give you a 90% scholarship. Uh, <sighs> and I that sounds see, dangerous. I would not, this is a business. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, all it's going to take is one small slippery slope action, uh, from one university. And the counter argument is to say, well, they're going to pick up that athlete that, uh, you know, another university is going to pick up that athlete. Um, and give them the full scholarship because they're not losing much from it. Mm. Um, but I think that in a post-lockdown world where you don't know if the money's coming in or not as a university, we've seen how badly universities globally have been ravaged by lockdowns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are probably, universities are probably going to be not so generous and look at ways of reducing the amount of uh, uh, quid pro quo between student athletes and the university. Yeah, right. Um is there any, without, and again, without going too deep here, I keep saying that, but we keep doing it. Um, That's my fault. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But I, I'm the one asking the questions here. So is there anything there to protect these student athletes then against something like that or not? Mm, you know, everything is theory until it happens. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. I, hope that, I, I hope that's the right answer. Not too deep, but gets to the point. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's really, really interesting. And that's where I said earlier at the top of the show, like it feels like we are on a bit of a precipice here. Um, and I know the game has always changed and games have always evolved and changed and that's the nature of sport. But it feels like this is um, quite monumental in terms of its potential shift here. 
Are there uh, any? Yeah, I, I think you're right. Are there any other rules currently that have come in recently off the top of your head that that you think have had a big impact or will continue to have an impact or maybe haven't had the impact you thought they would? Well, there's five rules that came out for this season that we, we don't know yet um, what the result is. Um, but four of them, um, to me at least in my interpretation of it, very clearly have to do with trimming down the fat. You mm-hmm. know, these games sometimes go for four hours and I think that the financial allure of more commercials, more this, more money, more money from his, having a longer game, it's, it's become oversaturated to the point where interest is being lost and it's not good for the game anymore. Um, so the four rules are uh, overtime regarding the two-point conversion requirements. Um, teams are required now to run a two-point conversion after a touchdown yeah. uh, when you reach second overtime. Yeah. So that's definitely going to encourage finishing the game more quickly it used to be third period of over, overtime and then it's just a one plus then it just becomes like now just a, then play. it's just a two-point con- conversion yeah. um yeah. which is interesting because that's essentially a modified design that i did for uh you know recommending to the nrl in their overtime structure mm-hmm. um, I, I won't go into it here people can look at uh, roy's article and find it there um Although I did lecture on it, that was on Rugby League Digest, so if anybody's interested, <laughs> <laughs> that was two years ago, but I think it's still up there. Yeah. Um, that's the first one. Uh, the second one is unsportsmanlike tactics, uh, having to do with... Um, uh, Butch Davis and FIU collapsing all over the place. I assume that's the one you're talking about. Is that video, like bo- the- video board and lighting system operators uh, are now included as uh, personnel that can't create distractions. Now, okay. that sounds more like fair game to most people. But the reality is when these things happen, there are delays. So I'm not saying it's, ne- it's essentially the, the reason you're slimming down the, uh, uh, the length of the game. But I think that is a secondary benefit from doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so from having unsportsmanlike uh, tactics, uh, including video board and lighting system operators, which, again, from a sports lighting perspective uh, for sports beams, uh, is, you know, A, interesting and B, good because our lights do change into millions of colors. Um, Mm -hmm. And having that technology is great. Um, One person, um, uh, Trent Schneider from USF, Mm -hmm. uh, who's the punter, he's an Aussie, he said it felt like going into a nightclub when they were coming out because it would just blast the USF green. Mm. Um, And even when nobody was physically present, it it energized the, the team into feeling like getting psyched up. And, you know, they do, lights do have an impact, but I think it's the right call to say, you know, video, video board and lighting operators are absolutely responsible and they can't do that. They can't give their home team an unfair advantage in that capacity. That, that, that wouldn't be right. Um, but yes, if that happens, that's going to add time and we don't want that. Uh, feigning injuries, I think that's pretty self-explanatory um, because Policing if you're going to feign an fun, injury right? to, to give everybody some a bit of extra air, um, it's not just the extra air, it's the extra time. Mm-hmm. Um, Instant replay with the clock adjustments. Oof. They even actually overtly said, you know, essentially in the order of, you know, to keep the game moving. Uh, when instant replay overturns uh, a call, the clock is only to be reset when there is less than two minutes remaining in the second and fourth quarter. So clearly mm-hmm. a direct, um, a direct uh, addressing of things taking too long. We're not going to add that time back. It's just a bit ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, the only one that really has nothing to do with timing is the team area. So because of um, 
COVID restrictions, um, the team area uh, was was made a bit wider, a bit you know on each side of the field, and they've just readjusted it again. Um, it was done to the twenty uh, yard lines, uh, and then the twenty five yard lines, and uh, then the fifteen yard lines. So this that that has nothing to do with uh, the clock, but it's important to you know note that it is very much there. Um, so, so what is the ideal, and I, I guess, you know, you are somewhat in touch with this sort of stuff, but I guess it becomes a TV marketing uh, financial line as well. But what is an ideal time then to get these games down to? Is, is three hours acceptable? Is three and a half hours acceptable? What are they looking at? I don't know what they're looking at, but I can tell you that uh, it, it, my personal opinion is I think three hours is a perfect package. Mm-hmm. Um I think it, it, that if you, I, I want to be very careful how I word this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that still with three hours, most of the game is not going to be what happens on the field. And yes, I do fully include the 40 seconds uh, between plays as what's going on. Because for people like us that watch football, we all know that what happens in between snaps is just as, if not more important, in the mm-hmm. actual strategy. It's a point where we all talk about uh, why didn't that work? What should we do next? You know, mm-hmm. you know run it out of the shotgun. Um, it, that's part of being a fan of the game mm-hmm. uh, for so many people because it's an interactive game. It's not just a reactive game, but because everything is from a set piece mm-hmm. um, and from the snap, that it's a proactive game where you can, on each play, break it down and discuss a strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great. Um, in reality, could you finish playing it in two hours? Yeah. Could you? Have we just normalized the fact that these games go that long? Like it feels like to me, that's just it. It just is what it is. But I guess if you, how quickly after a change of possession can you trot out a punt team and then trot out the offense, which obviously under the current circumstance gets a big ad break. But I assume that goes away and you can get the offense out there again, I suppose. I don't know. Yeah. If it, and then the answer is, in short, yes. We mm. have become accustomed to it. Um, it's one of the reasons why there's, frankly, so many different versions of watching the games condensed. Uh, you yeah. have your little 10 to 15, 12, whatever, 10, 12, 15-minute versions that you yeah. can get on YouTube. But if you want a narrative and be able to enjoy it, then you can watch one of the uh, ESPN minis, for example. Yeah. Um, and those go for 30. But then if you have the NFL uh, app, um, in the 40 for, uh, NFL game day, uh, you're going to be watching a 40 plus minute version. But you just it. lose something from that though. You, you don't get the whole picture. Like you said earlier, like what happens in between the plays to me is the interesting part. Like I love, if I could freeze some of the pre-snap stuff for an extra 30 seconds or 40 seconds at times, I would. Now, I don't want to do that, obviously, to lengthen. Six-hour game. Yeah, exactly. But there's times where you're just like, oh, I just want to see, just have a quick look what's happening. Um, and I know that's the job of a quarterback to do that all very quickly, but that's the interesting part to me. And you lose that in those 40-minute, or 30 minute or 12 minute packages, I think. So I agree. I, I think there's no narrative, there's no story arc mm. that you can really attach to. Um, and the shorter it gets, the less there is. I think of those three packages, you know, 40 is giving you the most bang for buck because you're mm-hmm. also getting your introduction, you're learning about it, it's, 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 a, it's a book. Mm-hmm. You're opening it up, you're seeing who's playing, you're starting uh, uh, offense, starting defense. Um, 
I think those are absolutely critical and important. But even that withstanding, I think you could play the whole game comfortably with a really good narrative. And this is assuming there's no TV timeouts and uh, mm -hmm. you're just playing the game. You would be, and again, focusing purely on playing the game, you could have that great narrative and finish the game in two hours. But mm. the reality is that doesn't pay the bills. No. <laughs> so. No. But even like AFL rugby games, they're not done in that time now either sure. in terms of NRL a, a is, telecasting. NRL is a two-hour two package. Yeah, okay, NRL. AFL is not. AFL is three hours. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you have four 20-minute, uh, and it's not really 20 minutes. People no. forget that all the time. It's 20 minutes of actual playing on the field. Correct. For four quarters. Um plus the build-up, plus in between quarters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay, cool. So let's move on from the rules a little bit. And I want to zoom out a fraction if we can, because to me, the college game is so different from the other very professional. Like American sport to me is is partly the the definition of American culture and, and belief. It's it's capitalism as a, in a sporting environment where the biggest if if you are the biggest and best you get to shower yourself in glory and the money and the riches are there and if you're not then you need to battle your way out of that hole and it's you know a free market that like that's the perception now i know that's not the reality of how it's structured college football is less like that but why is it so polarizing for americans and again pull me up here if i'm way off base on my first kind of take on professional sports in america but um why is college football so polarizing why does it have the following that is so so strong and why will that never be eaten into that's that's a great question um the it's the same reason why it's been uh or at least will be in my book uh shortly 150 years of college gridiron football um it's, it's, it goes back to one of your earlier questions. Where does the gridiron come from? And the answer is it comes from rugby union. Mm -hmm. uh, rugby union, in reaction to seeing association rules of the soccer game go professional in 1885, pushed very heavily for amateur values. And that was a way to make sure that the game was maintained, controlled by, um, you know, the, frankly, those that had and not those that had not. Um, the have-nots. Mm -hmm. um, but what that gave birth uniquely differently in the U.S. is that unlike uh, the other codes, which were represented by suburbs, um, which you could argue that AFL kind of lost in bringing in a draft, mm -hmm. um, the idea of community representation and the extension of the individual as part of a collective uh, for the purposes of football um, came from the universities. So... You were not talking that saying, hey, this guy that you know, I grew up with you know, down the street is representing the you know, local suburb uh, and may make it to first grade. Um, this was, oh, this guy in my class or the student I teach or uh, this student at the place where I work or, hey, this guy lives in. That's where the sense of community very heavily stems from. Uh, I always say you know, American and Canadian and a lot of professional sport globally um, that aren't as accustomed to this concept that you have to come from the neighborhood or the city that you play for um, is more a bit of a <laughs> representative democracy. Now, I know it doesn't work like this perfectly in politics, clearly, but the <laughs> idea is you want the best player representing you um, yeah. and because you want to win. Um, and college football still feeds heavily into that uh, otherwise lost 
uh, experience of community, of sport and community. Um, it's why, you know, the major NCAA Div 1 football schools have stadiums as big or larger than NFL stadiums. Mm-hmm. You have your faculty, you have your students, you and I. You have people that are in the community. I mean, when I was at USC, um, USC, and maybe I am throwing a bit of shade at UCLA. It's what we do. Um, (laughs) They've got a great basketball program, and I'll never take that away. Um, uh, But USC was LA's football team. Mm -hmm. The second largest city in America had no professional football team from 95 until the Rams and Chargers came back the other year. Mm-hmm. everybody was showing up i remember seeing snoop dog walking around campus uh you know because <laughs> practices were pete carroll practices were open anybody yeah. could w- go in and watch you know snoop was there with Lendell white and then this one and that everybody was always there um it was la's team so and how much more true is this of places that also don't have nfl teams um but also are not major metropolitan centers that are college towns that are um, you know, smaller, mid-sized cities. Um, there is a huge sense of community in that. Mm. But it, again, it's not that they play, that the college is located there. That's the outer ring. But it starts with, again, students, faculty, staff, and alumni. And then by extension, the community. Um, so it doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter. And obviously, we did our tour around the States and we're in a van. And, and you certainly got a feel of that, whether it was... I mean, we tended to go to the smaller, I say smaller college towns. They weren't smaller on game day, but your Tuscaloosas of the world, your um, Knoxvilles, your, I mean, anywhere really, your Tallahassees, anywhere that are pretty much college football towns, the community side of things was ridiculous. Everybody had the colors out. Everyone had the flags out. You know, you could... And everyone, it was such a positive environment. Actually, it was quite festive in lots of ways. Oxford, Mississippi, like there was so many good spots. I, I, I really appreciated that in the same way it feels like a big version of country football here in Australia on some level. Absolutely. Um, like I said, and that's built all, built all around the institution because the institution of the university is such a prominent uh, player in the community in a lot of these places it's it's fantastic it's there's nothing like tailgating um at these universities there really isn't it's such a unique spectacular opportunity where a shared identity of locality um and seeing a lot of the players around the community in a lot of these places the same restaurants the same classes the same um you know shops um it's highly unique and in the u.s that's that's not really something that you get in professional sport. Hmm. Um, players are very much put on a pedestal separate from, uh, from the rest. Um, hmm. So what about, where, I think that's where college serves such a vital uh, connection between uh, sport as entertainment and the community. Yeah. yeah. Right. So what about people that obviously you look at the big um, recruiter recruiting schools in terms of their ability to do that across the entirety of the United States and potentially the world as well. Your USC's, your Notre Dame's, your Alabama's. How do they go? Like, does that not get eaten into? If you've got it, particularly if they're from different, and I know how much Americans align with, well, political beliefs and viewpoints, but like say you get a kid from 
Oregon recruited to Texas, does that potentially cultural or political viewpoint or difference in viewpoint ever eat into that feeling of community? That, that's a great one, actually. So I've actually chatted with a few dozen Australians that yep. have gone over to be hunters for uh, university uh, football teams, for college football teams. And they all describe the cultures that they were in so differently. So for listeners of this that aren't aware, the diversity in culture in the U.S. is so different yeah. between each locality um, that it's worth, you know, it's, it merits acknowledging them almost as entirely separate countries sometimes. I, I, um, sorry, to, sorry to jump in here, but I could not agree with that more. I think if, you know, in Europe, they are different countries. In America, they're not. <laughs> correct. And it's funny because we call them states and another word for a country is a state. Yeah. They, they, they were, you know, they were separate colonies. Yeah. People forget this. Uh, they do have distinct identities and it's far beyond, um, you know, uh, uh, this is not taking a jab at any way, but acknowledgments of history, you know, penal colony in New South Wales and Freya, you know, when you go back into the 1800s mm. um, and all the way back to origin, um, they didn't view themselves as Australians. They viewed themselves as, you know, very specifically being of their colony. Mm. Um, and that's the same in the U.S. The, the difference is that um, it, population, frankly, <laughs> yeah. it's a big it, it's a big difference. And even the difference between Louisiana and Mississippi um, that are right next to each other um, and then Louis, Louisiana and Texas also right next to each other, completely different cultures. <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it's, it's not fair to just say, Oh, they're Southern. They yeah. have a nice accent or, you know, maybe you don't like it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's something that people, uh, I, I think that most people outside can't fully appreciate until they experience it. And people inside that haven't gone through those regions as you have, uh, don't fully, uh, understand what they actually do have in terms of genuine very stark different cultures and these these cultural differences just seem to be accepted on the college level though i guess i guess the reason for that question is the fact that to me it feels like again this precipice that college football seems like it's heading on the side that uh or the road or the the side of the mountain that college football could slip down or fall down is one that appears to be quite negative at the moment. A lot of the press around college football um, is either negative or trying to be swept under the carpet. It feels like a little bit of a gilded situation here in, in college football, that the outside looks bright and shiny, uh, but on the inside, maybe it's not as pure as it once was. So I guess to me, it feels like, and I could be totally off base here again, but there's a bit of negativity surrounding the sport. Does um, some of these cultural fits continue to eat into that on a local level when you're going to a game in Mississippi or at Baton Rouge or whatever? I've got good news for you. <laughs> Please. It, it's it's um, maybe it's not good, but I think it will at least assuage some of your worries. Yeah. Um, Nothing has really changed all that much. There's no golden age. A lot of it is gilded age. Yeah. Uh, and I don't mean that in terms of actual periods in time because there is a historical period in the U.S. known as the gilded yeah, age. Yes, there but is. Yeah. the reality is that shamaturism, you know, player payment, inconsistency of enforcing the rules of who is eligible, who's not, goes right back to the core. Because remember, this was supposed to be a game to make boys into men. Mm-hmm. 
don't get paid. You should be there at college to study and you also do this. This is, and these are the same topics that were, were mm-hmm. being talked about in the 1800s. Um, and uh, the only Australian who's in the Football Hall of Fame is a guy named Pat O'Day, who is from Kilmore, uh, you know, just north of Melbourne by, uh, it's a good drive, but it, it's still within reach. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, there were huge questions regarding his eligibility. And, you know, then they said, well, oh, well, he'll be eligible if he serves his six months of being at the university. We want him there for at least a year. But by the time that second six months had kicked in, the new season had already started and he had already played a season. Um, the, the guy was, was a legend. I mean, many believe that he dated uh, Dame Nellie Melba. They clearly knew each other. Um, I, the guy was known as the kangaroo kicker. He was a star. Um, but, you know, to say that, uh, you know, anything was different then, that it was so, you know, buttoned up and neat and tight and, uh, you know, on the up and up to, you know, no, they found a way to make sure he would be eligible to play. Mm. You know, it's, uh, I think it was uh, Admiral Grace Hopper who said, uh, it's better to uh, ask for forgiveness um, than get permission. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's really what's been running the ship the whole time. I, if I can make a, a very stark contrast just for Pat O'Day, because I can't really comment on um, the things I don't know about that are happening today. But... Um, he had a, he played two years, and this is before the VFL existed. It was the VFA still. Uh, but he played for Melbourne for two years, and then in his third and final year played for Essendon, which at the time were actually not physically in Essendon, though still going by the name, as uh, at East, uh, East Melbourne uh, Cricket Oval, yeah. which is now an apartment block, um, in, uh, essentially in Jollymont, just opposite the G. So. He had been applying to Melbourne Uni for law school and was rejected three times. Um, so he essentially up and left with one game left in the season. I believe that's why he, he didn't play the final game, that he was already on a boat, which took him to Vancouver to find his brother somewhere in America and got over there. And, well, the University of Wisconsin was more than happy to take him because he was a very proficient rower. Uh, yeah. And he studied law there and eventually became a lawyer. And that does spell out the stark cultural differences even today between American and Australian universities. The U.S. will look at your extracurriculars. They want you to take uh, general electives for a year, maybe a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he was an asset to the university beyond his uh, qualifications to purely go in as an incoming law student uh, meant that he was of value to them and, and vice versa, that they were of value to him, whereas... There was no shot of that here whatsoever. Um, and that, that, that attitude does bring about a lot of flexibility. So I don't think there's anything different going on in, in the sense, and I'm not trying to be flippant and saying there's nothing new under the sun because there are things that are different. But the overarching culture, we shouldn't believe that it was some pure sport where mm-hmm. people were truly um, you know, somehow in a magical alignment with the right thing as if we know what that is. Well, that makes me feel better that it's been slightly questionable the whole time as long as it remains slightly questionable then um, i'm happy with that i can accept that scallywags aren't we (laughs) um okay i suppose like last question because we are getting uh you know a bit over time here but hey i like talking to you you've always got good nuggets for us so uh but where's college football heading then so like i mentioned to me and you've i guess dispelled some of that 
um, myth that I've perhaps come up with in my own head. But where is college football heading? And and if it's you know certainly not negative, and it's going to continue down its path, and we're going to continue to have these parochial college towns, and um, hopefully some of these dynasties that are currently existing in the sport. Uh, wh- where are we heading to? Is it are, are we heading towards a relegation promotion system? Are we heading towards a situation where we continue to divide the haves and the have-nots, um, or will there be some rules put in place to minimise that and perhaps give some competitive advantage to a Kansas or a Akron or a Texas? bobcats or somebody to give some illusion of parity at least i don't know that's a good word illusion um most rule changes in most competitions uh can be chalked up to a certain degree of illusion Mm -hmm. um not because they're disingenuous sometimes they are sometimes they're not but because we don't know when we change the rules if they're going to actually suit the purpose um up until the six again rule the other year, uh, despite not having a draft and only having a salary cap, the NRL was the other NRL teams were much more closer in parity compared to the AFL. The AFL draft was supposed to solve that, but even with that plus that, it, it just was not like that. Now that's changed in the last two years, so um, that's not to say that it can't. But for specifically um, the future of uh, college football in the U.S., well. I, I definitely guarantee that games are going to slim down unless they find a financial way um, that justifies saying as long and bloated as they are right now, uh, which I think, you know, supply to the, the sky, demand to the sand. You got to find that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. They have so much supply right now by these long games that I think it diminishes their actual, um, you know, the value of earnings of each minute that they have another advertiser. Um I think we are going to see games getting a bit slimmer like that, a bit shorter. Um, I, I'm going to be keeping an eye personally on the player relations to the university. Are they you know, going to still get you know, full scholarships? Are they mm-hmm. still going to get that? And a lot of people get very angry about not just college athletes, but professional athletes. And they say, oh, well, they got a full scholarship and they just throw a ball um, or catch a ball. And uh, they, they make you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, even if you're just a starting player. But what, what people don't realize is that it is basic economics and basic uh, risk and reward. These are guys that, it, if you make the NFL, the average career is three years. That's an average. Mm. Uh, and let's assume that they, they don't pay, have to pay taxes, and let's just say they earn 220000 U.S. a year for three years. $660,000 in three years is pretty great, right? Mm-hmm. But these guys don't, frankly, necessarily have much of a career potential after that mm. to sustain that life. Not forget to sustain the lifestyle. Let's leave that out because let's assume that they even live modestly. Six hundred sixty k for a lifetime in total earnings is yeah. really not no a lot. Um, I think that that's why I want to really follow this to see if, for the players' uh, betterment, um, that they're, they're really given a genuine fair shake. Now, clearly, internationals aren't getting a penny, um, but uh, we can still look to make sure that the system works for domestic students and then and, and simultaneously work to apply that to internationals as well. I just don't believe the NCAA feels a compulsion to, um, to work hard for the international students now that the majority of their, um, the students that they you know, represent, let's just say, um, 
are very happy with the current agreement. Will the NCAA dis dissolve at some stage, do you think? No, <laughs> it'll, it'll be there. It's, it's gone through a few iterations throughout the past, but okay. it will still be there as, as a constant. I really hope regarding your comments about uh, giving uh, a bit of an edge to clubs, uh, sorry, clubs, uh, colleges, um, they are clubs, but uh, yeah, colleges yeah. that um, are maybe on the cusp of greatness. A, I don't think promotion relegation is a good strategy mm -hmm. uh, for most competitions. I think soccer is the exception to the rule because they give such a generous parachute package to whoever gets um, relegated. Okay. Um, but you see in rugby league in England, there's only been four clubs that have won the Super League, uh, yeah. which is started from 96, of which one of them has never bounced back from you know, to Super League for uh, relegation. They actually got were so bad, Bradford, that they went from cha uh, Super League to Championship to League One. And you can't, it's, not, it's not a sustainable structure if you're trying to bring about parity. Mm -hmm. uh, because what you do on the field is only one component. Your financial ability yeah. to be solvent and healthy is just as important. Mm -hmm. um, I do hope that we see this based out in terms of a more extensive uh, postseason. I think four teams is better than none, but you know, you're going to have to work it out. So are you find a, a way where you're not overtaxing the players because yeah, they so are student-athletes. Are you an advocate for increasing the playoff? Because I've been very... Will is. He, he wants to bump it up. He thinks eight teams is good, but he's happy to go to 12. Um, I like the weirdness of college football because I find that it is the one... And so you will about the BCS and the computer models and all that kind of stuff. But it was I, USC, not LSU, as national champion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no slight at LSU. Actually, I think they're a fantastic team. But being a, uh, a Trojan two-time alum, uh, I uh, you, you know, need to got to double down. Yeah, um, but I liked that element of it. I, the the playoff system, which is effectively a, a tournament system to finish the year, which is the same model that every single other sport follows. I and I think I stand with this. I want more entertaining games at the end of the year, and you know, the bowl the bowl yeah. games used to provide that because there'd be seven, eight, ten matchups which were entertaining and you would watch. But now the reality is, is if you're not in the top four, your season ends pretty quickly. Um, and what now feels like it ends far quicker than it used to. So I guess you're an advocate for, the, for increasing the playoff. And if so, why is that? I'm an advocate based on the question you asked me, <laughs> which is how do we bring about greater parity to okay. these teams? So it does um, bring parity. I think more representation does because the only way you know that strong teams in conferences that are perceived to be weaker mm. are actually just as strong or not is mm -hmm. to include them mm -hmm. we don't know if they don't play them okay see what i'm saying so yeah yeah yeah. If, yeah if we're addressing that question yeah it's a great <laughs> idea yeah now again this is not me being on the fence but i think every answer has to be rooted in a very clear question that yes. is trying to be solved yeah. um and that's, that's the academic in you yeah. Um, the other side of me loves the BCS. I think it's, you know, you're absolutely right. It, there is, um, I've been in Australia for the last uh, five or so years, and I can't really say that I've been on the ground. When I went back prior to lockdown, yeah, I, I went to SC for games, but I haven't been there to physically experience the postseason, you know, the BCS, the bowls. Mm. Um, 
and people's you know love and obsession for them and if it's really waned as much as front loading it into um into four teams as mm. some say it is it may be true it may not be i again and even if i went it would just be my experience my opinion based on my personal experience um you got to have data to drive these things as well and it's hard to drive uh you know to, to calculate passion uh mm. using data but um i do think that um if you do want to include these other teams, that it is worth it. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think Australia does a great job with finals. I okay. love the quarter semi prelim grand final structure. Why is that? And a lot, of, and because I think it's great where you give a shot to the two wild card teams in, in an elimination match in the quarters. Mm -hmm. They're gone. Whoever loses, because we know that they are from the season the weakest teams um and we always want to watch the best teams mm -hmm. um it provides a great opportunity for a real shocker though if mm. they do win and that's exciting however once you get to that semi-final round you're now looking at something different you've already gotten to the teams that are uh highly competent and it could be anybody so if somebody loses in that area um, it's not saying they're a bad team and should be they should be done for, but by creating a harder path with you know requiring more wins, I mean that that that's really exciting actually. Mm. You know you're differentiating the actual quality of the team. So if you wanted to institute a similar system, I don't think the U.S. would ever pick up on this, but I do think it's brilliant and I love it. Um, where the weaker teams that we discussed that are on the precipice of being great mm -hmm. um, were part of that quarterfinal wild card elimination. And that the other six teams, and let's just assume we're going with eight, so keep it consistent, mm -hmm. um, you know, have the ability to, to lose and then make a comeback. That could be a great way where you're providing representation for those near teams to have a massive upset, which is super exciting. Mm -hmm. And if they get flogged, it's still just a corner final. You know, you're, you're at least collecting the data and having enjoyment at the same time. There you go. So if I summarize everything we've talked about today, you want to ban all padding and helmets and you're a, a, a big believer in expanding the playoff okay i'm glad we've cleared that up spence reductionist but yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right now i've got one more question for you because we will have to let you go but is there a weird just uh, after all your exploration and um adventures through rules what is the weirdest rule you've come a, uh, come across it may be ollie I, I don't even care really which sport um and and should it have been got rid of or is it still in fact in existence you know could, uh, it's, it's not actually a rule but it's it, 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 as to how the game is played but the rule of how the field functions um because as far as weird, weird rules go, a lot of the weirder ones were made at a time where the sport was different, like mutual infringement, which we talked about earlier. It mm. just lost its place in today's game. But uh, Adam Korzak, who's the punter for Rutgers, actually pointed out to me that what we call the hash marks are not actually the hash marks. They're tick marks. The hash marks are the ones that actually intersect the yard lines perpendicular every five yards. And um, that was a bit of knowledge that I got uh, uh, taught the other day. But again, the weird thing that I love about football, when you compare high school to college to the NFL in the U.S., and obviously Canadian uh, football has their own distance between what most people call the hash marks, the tick marks, is that when you start in high school, 
you have the widest hash marks. And then they get narrower in college. And then back in the 70s, the NFL changed theirs from the college standard to make them the narrowest and in line with the goalposts. So that means that you are reducing the efficacy of the run game as the markers, the tick marks, the hash marks get narrower and narrower because you have less horizontal space to play, but more of the opportunity to throw the ball forward. So why is this so weird? Um, it's very rare that you see this sort of adjustment between uh, levels of sport uh, at that level uh, being so different because it does encourage more of a run game um, at the high school and college levels than at the NFL. Um, but I guess the, the weirdest thing to me, which again, is it's a vestigial organ, is that we still call the line where we score a touchdown the goal line, right? Yeah. You call it the goal line? Yeah. I call it the goal line? Well, guess what? It hasn't been the goal line since they moved the goal posts <laughs> to the back of the end zone. Yeah. Because, and that's what's unique about American football, rugby union, and rugby league uh, specifically. There's a difference between a touchdown or a try from a goal. A goal has always been the kick between the posts. Mm -hmm. We still call it the goal line, but it, it hasn't been the goal line since the 70s. It's a touchdown line now because there is no goal there to be made. Wow. Okay, a lot going on there. So, I, and I can't help but ask another question here, but with the NFL then, if they're going to continue to promote forward passing, do they narrow those tick marks even further? Great. Jeez, you are really, uh, what, what's the Aussie expression? Uh, switched on. There we go. <laughs> you are really switched on. So there the answer is it's not just the NFL and the gridiron uh, as a whole looking at this. Um you would argue that you wouldn't narrow them. You would just start the ball in the middle mm -hmm. every single time. Correct. Yeah. And what rugby league has done recently is when you have an infringement that turns into a scrum or if it's on fifth tackle to play the ball, you can choose if you want to play the ball or scrum from the 10 or 20 from the touch line um, or play it from the exact middle of the field. And where do you think mm. they pick most frequently? The middle, middle of the, the field? field? Middle of the field, yeah. Um, because you have two flanks to go on. Amongst yeah. other Again, very reductionist, simple, short explanation for it. It's more complicated than that. Yeah. But um, yeah, if the NFL were to do it, they would. I don't think they would do the, uh, put it between uh, the tick marks, between the hash marks. They would put it in the middle every single time. Um, I, I think for, you know, the, the icing on the cake, um, the kicking game, the field goals, you know, the college game is more interesting because the hash marks mm. are, they are wider. Mm. Um, and high school, well, their goalposts are wider to begin with, but their hash marks are the widest. Um, is there room to have hash marks in the NFL purely for the purpose of where the ball goes if you choose to kick a field goal, but everything else starts at the center? No, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you have um, the opportunity if you're running out of time to elect to just snap the ball where the player was tackled. <laughs> it, it, no, it's not going to happen, but it would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I like that. Do that in the preseason. Yeah, I'd be down with it. That's why I said it. I want people to hear me say it. I, I don't and say, think... yeah, that's a great idea. I get the purpose of the preseason, although I, not so much anymore. They've reduced it from four to three at the NFL, and most of the players don't play anyway. 
bring mm. in some weird rules. I don't think the rules are weird enough at in preseason games. Make them weird. I don't know. I, I feel the same way about the uh, the All Star game. I think yeah. that it's 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 theoretically a nice place to test rules, but the, you know guys aren't really showing up for that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do have other ways of reinvigorating the actual competition in the All Star game, which you know could be good financially for players too, but. Uh, if we're just going to use it as a place to have fun and test some kooky rules, um, come on, guys, try it out. Let people snap the ball from where the ball goes down. <laughs> yeah, just line it up as quick as you can. I exactly. Like and if you're too close to have a, uh, a, a left guard or an left tackle <laughs> or whatever, you know, we can have a little uh, extra, you know, mark to say that you have to be at least, you know, five yards in from, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, from running out of bounds. That's um, good. Yeah, I we, mean, we, you, we we can figure it out. Your jet sweep into the uh, into the into the boundary side is probably going to be slightly problematic in that situation. But um, hey, you never. That, know. Hey, that's why it's called the weak side. It's exactly. not the don't go. It's not the don't go there side. Yeah, exactly. All right, Spencer. Well, thank you very very much for your time and thank you for all your insights. We do have to leave it there. Um, it has absolutely been my pleasure, and um, hopefully we can uh, have you on again soon. No, that would be great. Hey, thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to next time and every other time. Thanks so much, mate. And hopefully when the borders end up, we can catch up and have a beer and watch some sport together. Hey, you know what? Maybe we'll just hop on the Overland train and uh, make it a session. <laughs> listen to you. All right. See, so you got all the all the jargon as well. All right. Uh, I do want to make a, a say a big, big thank you to Spencer. So uh, again, in terms of us here at CFB Down Under, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Make sure you hit us up there. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave us those five-star reviews. Vault Studios, we are part of that network as well. So make sure you do look after the guys across there. JA and the boys doing a fantastic effort. And as always, Burnley Brewing. Um, But most importantly, thank you again, Spencer. Uh, My name's Aaron, and we will see you next time. (laughs) 